Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters' industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to findlaw.com, and at the top of the page, click on Legal Forms and Services. Welcome to Find Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm your acting host this week, Andy Leonetti. Uh, Laura Temi is base jumping off of the Burj, Burj Khalifa. I guess she had enough of this super fun and approachable topic. Missing I'm, out, Laura. Yeah. I'm joined by Vedahi Mehta. Hey. And, uh, and Joe Fabush. Is it too late for me to back out and go cliff jumping? Because oh, okay. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> As Beta, he said, uh, this week is part two of our massive discussion of the leaked draft opinion uh, by Samuel Alito in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health that essentially overturns Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, longstanding abortion rights protections in the country. And this week, we're going to get a little bit into uh, wild speculation. Last week was kind of the history lesson, and this week we're going to put on our future-seeing uh, glasses or fortune-telling, te- fortune future-see, what? <laughs> <laughs> we'll um, look into our crystal balls. Yeah, we'll look into our crystal ball here. And uh, the first thing, Joe, is that uh, what you wrote about is that Justice Alito kind of went out of his way to in that draft opinion to talk about how this only applies mm-hmm. this only applies to abortion not sort of all unenumerated rights to privacy but it seems that by virtue of him saying that everyone now is automatically like I don't believe you um <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen a lot of speculation about uh, what's next and whether this will have a cascading effect for other unenumerated rights given by substantive due process, which is in the 14th Amendment. Uh, so basically, there are a couple of cases. These are the privacy line of cases. And the first one that we wanted to talk about was Griswold v. Connecticut. Uh, We mentioned it briefly last week. This is the case that involved birth control. It was a 1965 case, so it predated Roe v. Wade. And it was a 7-2 decision. And that's where the court found a zone of privacy that was inherent in the Constitution. This is the infamous case where the justices found a penumbra emanating from the Constitution that gave a right to privacy that included the right for a married couple, and at this point, only a married couple, to get access to birth control. Uh, Another case dealt with unmarried people. Mm -hmm. So the zone or penumbra that emitted from the Bill of Rights that gave a right to privacy was the first, third, fourth, and fifth. 
And if you recall from our discussion last week, we talked about how Justice Alito took issue with this no clear roots in the Constitution uh, theory. So his issue was that, look, this isn't clear enough. If we're going to ascribe a certain liberty to United States citizens, it needs to be clear in the Constitution. And if it's not clear, there needs to be a longstanding history with this right that the Constitution would then encompass. And so you can see the problem here, because with Griswold v. Connecticut, if you give a woman the right to birth control based on this right to privacy, if you say that there is no right to privacy to controlling one's pregnancy, logically doesn't that extend to the right to birth control? Now, Justice Alito as you mentioned, Andy, attempts to distinguish this. Mm-hmm. Basically, what he says is that abortion... No, no, uh, this is different. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That is what he says. It's different uh, because abortion involves potential life, right? That's what he says. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's as simple as that. Abortion is is different in the thing that it is doing, and the moral question surrounding abortion means that it's different than the question around birth control. So while it appears that Justice Alito isn't necessarily gung-ho about eliminating all privacy rights that have been found, uh, you can forgive some people for being a little worried about Mm -hmm. what this means for other unenumerated rights. So that's kind of what we wanted to start with. And there's a ton to get into with Griswold. We'll try to Mm -hmm. keep it short and clear and to the point. Um, But there's a lot of substance here that we'll get into and that I know Vedahi and I find fascinating, (laughs) hopefully. Hopefully y'all do too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One preliminary yeah, isn't isn't aren't like preliminary arguments not on the merits always fun to get into, <laughs> um, such as standing, like we got into last week. So in in Griswold too, there was a, an interesting contrast for um, the standing of the doctor because in Griswold, the the plaintiffs who were suing were not the people who were affected by like they were not the couples seeking the contraception they were the the providers of medical advice and the contraceptives and so so it was basically the people that were paralleling the abortion doctors in the row line of cases and in Griswold the court decided that the providers of medical advice and contraceptives certainly quote should have standing to assert that the offense for which he is charged with assisting is not or cannot constitutionally be a crime unquote because they were you know being prosecuted for providing the service and this is an outcome that's different from Roe due to the fact that Griswold was pre what we call younger abstention and younger abstention was just uh, from a case called Younger v. Harris that was decided. The Supreme Court held that federal courts were required to abstain from hearing any civil rights tort claims brought by a person who is currently being prosecuted for a matter arising from that claim, a.k.a. like in Roe, the abortion doctor was being criminally prosecuted by the state um, and the 
the providers for contraceptives in Griswold were also being criminally prosecuted by the state at the same time that they were challenging the constitutionalities of these laws. But Younger was decided while Roe was going up the appellate chain. And so by the time SCOTUS heard it, they held that they had to dismiss the doctor in Roe's complaint, Roe's doctor, because he had state criminal proceedings going against him at the same time. So I just kind of want to put it in layman's terms. So Mm -hmm. basically, you have to let the criminal stuff play out first before you can bring a civil claim. Now you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, But But in Griswold, they were able to get away with uh, having standing. And y'all mentioned penumbras. We talked about this last week. Andy, did did we do a sufficient job of recapping penumbras? Have you had enough about all about that with that word? When you guys talk about penumbras in the legal sense, all I can think about is like the movie National Treasure or something, and the Constitution <laughs> itself is literally emitting light. <laughs> That's kind of exactly what it is, though. Um, the court in Griswold, they, you know, they kind of invented this word. It's not a legal term of art, like Joe said last week. Um, the court in Griswold said that they were dealing with, quote, a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. And so it goes to the core of, you know, it, this sort of argues against what Alito and a lot of textualists will say, well, you can't point to this right in the Constitution because, as the as the Griswold court said, you know, some rights are so fundamental, it seems that they're saying that they, they, they don't even have to maybe be in the Bill of Rights. They're older than the Bill of Rights. Right. Like the Constitution does not say thou shalt not kill. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I guess that it opens a whole different can of worms <laughs> with the Establishment Clause if we're going to talk about <laughs> religious text as a basis for uh, for rights and laws. But the Griswold court doesn't just talk about rights of privacy that are, you know, in the, in the, in the 14th amendment in the way that Roe does. In fact, they focus a lot on privacy rights throughout the bill of rights. And remember the 14th amendment isn't part of the bill of rights. Cause that's just the first, first 10 amendments. The Griswold court talks a lot about the right of association, which isn't actually explicitly mentioned in the constitution nor the bill of rights. They say Quote, the right to educate a child in a school of the parent's choice, whether public or private or parochial, is also not mentioned, nor is the right to study any particular subject or any foreign language, along with the freedom of association of people. Yet the First Amendment has been construed to include some of these rights throughout various cases. And I'll just note that the freedom of association sounds a lot like the freedom of assembly, which is explicitly mentioned in the First Amendment, but this is different. The court says that the freedom of association is broader. Um, It's more than the right of assembly. It's a right that extends to all irrespective of the race or ideology. And notably, they point to cases like NAACP versus Alabama, which protected the freedom to associate and privacy in one's associations. And they noted that the freedom of association was a peripheral First Amendment right. So they held unconstitutional the disclosure of membership list of a constitutionally valid association because it was likely to be a substantial restraint upon the exercise of their right to freedom of association. This is similar to the effect on free speech that comes when the government has repercussions for saying certain things. Uh, similarly, in a case called Schwarze v. Board of Bar Examiners, 
SCOTUS held that it wasn't okay to bar a lawyer from practice just because he had been a member of the Communist Party. They have also held that this freedom applies to forms of association that aren't just political in the customary sense, but pertain to social, legal, economic benefit of the members. So on the subject of marriage, which is is the context of Griswold and contraception, the court says that marriage is, quote, an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions, unquote. I mean, I'm married, and I'm not sure I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Not a no purpose. Just kidding. Oh, man. Uh, Does does your wife listen to us, Andy? Clearly not. Yes, she does. (laughs) Oh, man. And um, apart from the freedom of association, the Griswold Court went into the privacy protected by other amendments, including notably the Fourth Amendment, which, again, explicitly affirms the right of people to be secure in their person, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. They have this interesting quote in in the Griswold Court that says, Would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives? The very idea is repulsive to the notions of privacy surrounding the marriage relationship. Mm -hmm. That is quite a statement. That's a pretty strong quote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we'll see echoes of that sentiment in Lawrence v. Texas, which is the private sexual acts case. This line of cases in particular says the government should be staying out of people's bedrooms. Mm-hmm. And I did want to go back and kind of talk about it in a larger context, Vadihi, because you brought up a lot of different rights that the Supreme Court discussed in Griswold. And this is something that the Supreme Court and appellate courts do quite often. They take something that is in the Constitution or is a federal law and they have to decide whether an act applies to this law or this constitutional mm-hmm. provision or not. And so what they're doing in Griswold is finding all of these rights that are that are implied in the constitutional text. Uh, as we talked about a couple of times now, the Ninth Amendment specifically says that the Bill of Rights is not are not the only rights that mm-hmm. Americans have. And so the court is going back through these various constitutional amendments to find out, well, okay, what does that mean? Do we have the right to freedom of association? Is that covered in the First Amendment? No. Well, where is it covered? So what we're doing is, you know, the founding fathers did a lot of things and knew a lot of things, but they can't anticipate every yeah. potential circumstance that's coming up. And so courts have to decide whether new information or new laws actually uh, accord with the Constitution. So I just kind of wanted to take a step back. I know that's kind of the law 101, but it's something that the Supreme Court does quite often. It's This is not just the line of privacy cases. This is applicable to a wide variety of of topics. So that's kind of what we're doing here. Yeah. And you mentioned the Ninth Amendment, Joe. I believe even to this day, the majority of a court hasn't held that the Ninth Amendment is alone sufficient for any kind of unenumerated right, which is sort of flying in the face of the text. But a lot of courts have mentioned it amongst other rights and concurrences. Lots of concurrences have mentioned it throughout cases. Notably, the concurrence in Griswold with Justice Goldberger argued that the Ninth Amendment 
should be sufficient on its own to support a fundamental constitutional right to marital privacy. And again, the Ninth Amendment states that if the Constitution enumerates certain rights but does not enumerate others, it doesn't mean that those other rights don't exist. And if you want to hear more about that, our episode from March 31st of this year had a great interview with a Ninth Amendment scholar in which I asked him, I guess, unwittingly, presciently about like, oh, hey, Mm -hmm. in the off chance Mm -hmm. that SCOTUS were to strike down Roe, would the Ninth Amendment be grounds for finding a right to abortion? Man... Professor Cult seemed to think it was. Yeah. That may be played out later. Certainly somebody could challenge it on Ninth Amendment grounds. With Roe, it was mostly decided on the 14th and Mm -hmm. the five other Bill of Rights provisions that we mentioned. Yeah. I will also just note that the Goldberger concurrence in Griswold mentions a sort of slippery slope argument. So Goldberg says, quote, surely the government absent a showing of compelling subordinating state interests, because again, it's always about balancing interests, the government could not decree that all husbands and wives must be sterilized after two children have been born to them. Yet, by the majority's reasoning, such an invasion of marital privacy would not be subject to constitutional challenge because, while it might be silly, no provision of the Constitution specifically prevents the government from curtailing the marital right to bear children and raise a family. So if upon a showing of a slender basis of rationality, again, that's like the rational basis test, if a law outlawing voluntary birth control by married persons is valid, then by the same reasoning, a law requiring compulsory birth control also would seem valid. But of course, in his view, both types of law are unconstitutionally intrusive of marital privacy. So similarly, Alito's opinion, you know, it says we're only talking about the Roe and Casey line of cases, but it's not hard to extract a slippery slope argument that could spread through all kinds of rights and privacy rights that have been established. And the the line drawing seems arbitrary. Goldberger notes that in determining which rights are fundamental, judges are not left at large to decide cases in light of their personal and private notions, but they have to look at the traditions, collective consciousness of our people, history, determine what's deeply rooted there so as to be fundamental. But again, this this changes. You know, At the time, the court only thought that you had to be married in, ha- in order to have contraceptives. And, and, you know, this it was later applied to non-married couples as well. So even if judges are saying, oh, you know, judges aren't supposed to use their own personal notions to decide what's fundamental and that that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution, they're inevitably doing that. Yep. Now we're entering into the wild speculation part. This is <laughs> This is Joe's opinion. So do I think that the Supreme Court has in mind taking away certain rights associated with substantive due process like birth control and like interracial marriage. Uh, No, I don't. But I do think that if Alito's leaked draft opinion holds, the legal argument that he's using, and again, it matters the reasoning of these cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're not used to reading opinions, it might seem like, well, okay, the holding is what really matters. And and to some extent, that's true. But it also matters how you reach that opinion. And how Justice Alito reached his opinion could easily be used at some point in the future to justify 
getting rid of some of these other rights. So that's kind of where the issue is. You know, I don't want to panic anybody or, or be hyperbolic, but it is something that the door has at least been opened. Yeah, and to be clear, too, about uh, how these other rights would have to be essentially tossed out, you would have to have some sort of a state law being passed and then someone suing on the grounds that, say, the Texas legislature passing a law to overturn uh, Lawrence v. Texas and codifying that into law, you'd someone would have to then sue and then it would work its way through the courts again. The Supreme Court is not just going to unilaterally do away with these yeah. other, quote, unenumerated rights. Yeah, that that's a great point, Andy. And one of the reasons why the Supreme Court always seems to take abortion cases is because a lot of state legislatures make it a priority to pass laws that test the boundaries yeah. of Roe v. Wade and Casey. So... Um, that's why it came up so much, but it, you're right. Absolutely. A state would first have to say we're making a, a birth control illegal or interracial marriage illegal before that case would come to the Supreme court. Yeah. So the other privacy right found in the 14th amendment that is perhaps the most well-known is the right to marry regardless of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is another old case. It was decided also before Roe v. Wade. It was decided in 1967. It involved an interracial couple who wanted to get married under Virginia law at the time. This was not allowed. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court held two things, actually. And this is an important distinction that I've seen people confuse a little bit. So there is a right to marry anyone regardless of race found under substantive due process in the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't read the 14th Amendment a while, in a while, there are actually kind of two important clauses in there. The other one is equal protection. And in Loving v. Virginia, the Supreme Court both found a substantive due process right to marry whoever mm -hmm. regardless of race. And it also found that any laws banning interracial marriage violated equal protection as well under the 14th Amendment. So while both of them are based on the 14th Amendment, there are actually two separate clauses. And these can lead to two very different lines of, of reasoning. Yeah. So I just want to make that clear because I, I've heard some people confuse those those two things online. Is it right to say that in a way, equal protection, if, if, if a right can be found under the equal protection clause, it does have more teeth than the right to privacy through the 14th Amendment's due process clause? The Supreme Court has generally viewed equal protection with a little more authority than substantive due process. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's necessarily how it has to be how in terms of how the supreme court has decided cases yeah that does seem to be how the supreme court has handled it so yeah the so that was loving v virginia again do i think that we're gonna have people coming for interracial marriages no and also with loving and interracial marriage there is the equal protection which which the supreme court could use to invalidate any laws banning interracial marriage uh so i I think interracial marriage is probably okay, but, you know, again, it, it kind of opens the door. Um, the same thing with Lawrence v. Texas, like we talked about, the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts. Texas had an anti-sodomy mm -hmm. law on the books, and basically it was an anti-LGBTQ law. 
uh, and the Supreme Court, again, like in Griswold, said, look, we don't want the government in our bedrooms any more than anyone else does, so we're going to give them a right to privacy in their bedroom under substantive due process. And then the last one is same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. which is Obergefell v. Hodges. That was a much more recent case. Uh, you may remember when that one came out, but it also kind of continued this line of privacy cases. These are not the only four that involve the right to privacy, but they're kind of the four main big ones and the things that people are concerned about because uh, people are concerned about whether same-sex marriage will again become illegal, you know, whether anti-sodomy laws could again come on the books. Um, so these are the sorts of things that are kind of the, the slippery slope argument is raising. And Joe, I think it's uh, important to note that not only for Loving v. Virginia as applied to interracial marriages, but under Obergefell v. Hodges, where it applied to same-sex marriages, that right to interracial and same-sex marriage was found both under the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause. And I bring this up because abortion so far hasn't been found under the Equal Protection Clause, even though it's been argued. The Roe Court steered clear of equal protection, even though it was brought up uh, by the plaintiffs as an argument. And in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which we talked about last week, a plurality of the court wrote that the right to abortion was necessary to women's equality. They wrote, quote, for two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives, unquote. But Casey also did not rely on equal protection for its holding. Two separate concurrences in Casey expressed the view that restrictions on abortion implicate equal protection in addition to due process, but not the majority. And in Gonzalez v. Carhartt, the case that I referred to in last week's episode, that case that upheld the partial birth abortion ban, Justice Ginsburg, the late RBG, uh, she dissented with three other justices and argued for grounding the right to abortion in concepts of personal autonomy and equal citizenship rather than the privacy approach. And she wrote that legal challenges to undue restrictions on abortion procedures do not seek to vindicate some generalized notion of privacy, but rather they center on a woman's autonomy to determine her life's course and thus to enjoy equal citizenship stature. And so using an equal protection argument would weave in the right to abortion with sex discrimination jurisprudence and the, the term equal citizenship, as RBG puts it. Um, and she defines this term a little bit more in U.S. v. Virginia, not Loving v. Virginia, different case. Uh, the Vir U.S. v. Virginia is a case that struck down the male-only admissions policy of a military institute. She defines this term equal citizenship to mean equal opportunity to aspire, achieve, participate in, and contribute to society based on individual talents and capacities. A lot of scholars that are pro-choice will try to make this argument, and they will encompass it in terms of different burdens that restrictions from the ability to make bodily autonomy choices such as 
abortion will put on mothers, um, such as burden of motherhood arguments that say restrictions on abortion deny women decisional and reproductive autonomy and also perpetuate women's subordinate status by compelling motherhood and sort of preserve traditional notions of separate spheres, you know, that women are first and foremost wives and mothers. And then there's also arguments like burden of pregnancy argument, you know, like that you'll put all these burdens of, of both financial and physical on women, and it's different from, from men not having them. Yeah, Vedahi, you made a, a really good point um, about some of the alternative ways that we could use equal protection. Um, I've also seen it, you know, you could make an equal protection argument for women who are below a certain income mm-hmm. level, because with states treating abortion differently now, uh, women with income may have more of an opportunity to obtain abortion services than women who do not have the ability to travel. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to to reach out to our resident uh, <laughs> local political <laughs> news junkie, Andy, because, um, you know, I think it would be helpful here to kind of talk about what, it, what states are. It's getting wild out there, guys. Um, <laughs> The uh, I'll just I'll I'll say first off like I normally do in when we're talking about stuff like this is that do not count on anything to happen in the U.S. Congress, just period. Uh, <laughs> oh, the, yeah. the failed the failed vote in the Senate is what it is. There are talks ongoing about maybe holding separate votes on just strictly codifying Roe v. Wade into law. Um, protecting or to protect rape, incest, and life of mother exceptions for abortion, uh, to protect access to mifeprestone, otherwise known as the abortion pill that can come in the mail. Mm-hmm. But move on. Um, <laughs> um, but what is happening is that we are seeing a, a flurry of lawmaking from state governments already. Um mm-hmm. I will say, check out findlaw.com. We've got a nice map for uh, laws that would automatically go into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned, including uh, so-called trigger laws that would essentially ban abortion in in, in certain states. Uh, what's happening now is that uh, some states are basically thinking about passing the new Texas abortion law themselves. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Oklahoma... Uh, They passed a bill that essentially mirrors the Texas law that uh, gives private citizens the right of civil enforcement against anyone who uh, aids and abets an abortion, like abortion providers, people who drive people, except except that the Oklahoma law, whereas the Texas law uh, stopped at uh, six weeks from point of conception, the Oklahoma Mm -hmm. law now would prohibit all abortion, nearly all abortions at the point of fertilization. It does make exceptions for rape and incest, but only if those crimes have been reported to law enforcement. What about exceptions for the and risk? it do, and it does have yes the medical emergency to the mother uh-huh. uh, exception exactly. And it also like as we were talking about, I thought this was interesting as we were talking about birth control and contraception. It does not block. Uh, the use or prescription or the administration of Plan B, uh, or the, also known as the morning after pill, mm-hmm. or any other type of contraception or emergency contraception. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk about worry about like IUDs being mm-hmm. banned because as you get as you talk about banning an abortion at the point of fertilization, you could 
people say there's a legal argument to be made then that you could ban IUDs. Uh, so that's Oklahoma. Uh, Louisiana, which was getting a lot of news press recently, a bill that classified abortion as a homicide did fall apart in the Louisiana House. This um, basically what had there were there were some hardcore anti-abortion rights advocates saying that Louisiana's trigger law did not go far enough and they were demanding mm-hmm. equal protection for a fertilized embryo. Um Oh, that is interesting. And what and essentially what happened is that it was a intra battle between anti-abortion rights groups that some were making the same argument that I was going to mention here from the Susan B. Anthony list, which is kind of the nation's most prominent, one of the nation's most prominent pro-life political advocacy groups that they said they they want to focus lawmaking efforts strictly on the corporate side of things. Uh, essentially, and not on the women's side of things, which basically means they want laws that go after abortion providers, pharmaceutical companies that would mail uh, plan that would put Plan C in the mail and send it to a state where where that is illegal, things like that. And the Louisiana bill essentially cracked down too hard on women who were seeking an abortion. Andy, you mentioned an interesting thing of this pattern that people are seem to like arguing about, you know, where does life begin in couch it in terms of the rights of a fetus or an embryo. I wanted to point out that, you know, uh, and, and also Alito distinguishes Roe and Casey from the decisions that lead up to them and other privacy rights cases for the reason that Roe and Casey involve this potential life. But in the abortion debate, we have competing interests of the mother, sure, and maybe the abortion providers and the state, but we don't really actually have the interest of the rights of the fetus in terms of its own constitutional right. And this is not my opinion of whether or not a fetus has interest or where life begins. But this is something that Roe had determined. So after observing a long line of precedent, not just based on the 14th Amendment, but everywhere else in the Constitution, the Roe court found that for the purposes of the 14th Amendment and the rest of the Constitution, a fetus is not a person such that it has rights protected by the Constitution. And so I thought that this was an important point to keep in mind when we're talking about, you know, interest in protecting life, that that interest is not claimed by the fetus or the embryo. It's claimed to be held by the state. So it's the state's interest in preserving fetal life that is supposedly competing with the mother's interest in bodily autonomy. But the fetus does not, according to the Roe court, have its own constitutional rights. Now, in this overturning, if were it to happen... Um, in Dobbs, would that just go out the window, like the determination that a fetus does not have constitutional rights? My understanding is not. I don't believe Alito addresses it mm-hmm. in his in his leaked opinion. That's what I thought. Yeah, but that is something that that may change. We could see if it's, it's an interesting point. Well, guys, I'm about to introduce another constitutional issue potentially. Um, that, that, because oh, <laughs> I'm, bring it on. I'm bring not, because I'm not done here and we haven't even gotten to the potential new legal battleground in the abortion, abortion lawmaking landscape of regulating interstate commerce. Um, oh boy. The ICC. Yeah. Because, because Oklahoma, the Oklahoma law and a proposed law in Missouri, which, uh, a proposed law in Missouri essentially also takes the Texas law and, is and basically extends it to 
anyone who helps a Missouri resident get an abortion. Basically, Mm. what they're trying to crack down on is Missouri residents driving across the Mississippi River into Illinois and getting abortions um, because Illinois has already passed a law protecting abortion rights. And so that's a potential interesting legal frontier there. That also raises uh, privacy concerns with uh, Mm -hmm. privacy advocates because they're going to wonder what type of uh, cell phone records are available to people doing an investigation. You know, did you drive to Illinois? All right, let me see your, let me see your cell phone and see if you went to the Planned Parenthood to look at your Google location data. So some of these States that ban abortion might, might try to crack down on say also not even just someone driving to another state and going to a Planned Parenthood, but driving across a state line, opening up their cell phone, doing a telehealth visit with a doctor in that state where abortion is, mm-hmm. is legal, getting prescribed an abortion um, and either getting a pill in the mail or going to an abortion clinic. Or someone who lives in a state like, say, Oklahoma, using a P.O. box in a state next door to have their Plan C put in the mail there. And then they go and get it. Real quick question. My understanding of the Interstate Commerce Clause is that it gives Congress the power to legislate and sort mm-hmm. of like takes it away from the states. So wouldn't the Interstate Commerce Clause prevent states from legislating here where people are going across state lines? I would think. I have a quote here from David Cohen. He's a law professor at Drexel University. He, he predicted we're going to see a lot of, quote, state against state battles that are really going to divide the country even deeper on this issue. He said that the Supreme Court does not have well-developed case law regarding extraterritorial application of state law. And he said, mm. but but that gets into an issue of banning travel, which kind of goes against basic freedoms. You have the freedom to travel in this country. You have the freedom to go to Nevada and gamble, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and gamble even as, like me, a Missouri resident. Or go smoke weed in Denver even right. as yeah, a Georgia ex- resident. Ex- exactly. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up those two examples because – I think it's important to make a distinction between those two in which there is already a federal law on the books for some of those Mm -hmm. things, uh, particularly for marijuana. Um, As we all know, marijuana is still controlled substance under federal law, despite certain state laws. But here, Mm -hmm. the federal government doesn't have anything on abortion, Mm -hmm. you know, pro or against. So really what we're doing is pitting states against each other. To me, the analogy is less toward marijuana or gambling mm-hmm. and more slaves escaping mm-hmm. from the Underground Railroad. Yeah. And and they would go to northern states and then northern states where – I mean, I'm not comparing the issue to slavery. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that it's it's this large issue no, for sure, states though. Uh, are competing against each other and have different laws. And how do you resolve well, that? And, and it brings up issues of sort of like comedy – uh, not yeah. ha-ha comedy. Yeah, right? C-O-M-I-T-Y. <laughs> Despite me laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but like, you know, in back in back in slave versus free states, I think, you know, free states had to respect the laws of slave states. And ret- at a certain point, there was this issue of do you return the slave or do you not? And here it's like, does, does a pro-choice state have to respect the laws of the pro-life state and deny a mother that, you know, right. comes and seeks an abortion there? And I'll, and I'll note 
because I was just I was mentioning states that were acting to further try and crack down on abortions too. Uh, Connecticut fired a kind of counter salvo in this uh, battle that they the legislature and the governor have already signed a law in the last few weeks that is it allows people who are sued over their role. And well, I'll, that's the second part. The first part is it prohibits law enforcement in Connecticut from cooperating with investigations into, say, a Connecticut abortion provider providing an abortion to an out to someone from out of state. It would basically prevent Connecticut law enforcement from cooperating with, say, Texas in like an investigation of a Texas resident going there to get an abortion. And it kind of reverses the Texas law. It allows people who are sued over their role in providing an abortion to counter sue in Connecticut court and to wow. re- and to recoup legal fees and costs. It's essentially hmm. the opposite of the Texas law. Interesting. <laughs> it, Veda, he said, use the term comedy and it does kind of a extremely divisive issue like this does kind of have the potential to turn into the a rolling series of Supreme Court battles uh, mm-hmm. that raise basic issues about national citizenship and state sovereignty and whether you're a citizen of your state and the United States or if you're a citizen mm-hmm. of your state and what what all of this means. I think it only I think from what I've from what I've seen on my perusal of the landscape, it is only going to get uh, wilder. Yeah, let's hope we don't have another civil war over this one. Yeah, the debate is not over. We've been having it for 40 or 50 years, and it shows no sign of slowing, even with this admittedly monumental upcoming decision. Yeah, states will be fighting it out. There's lots of ancillary issues to work through. So be be prepared for, for more to come on this. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.